we're in Philemon tonight, Philemon, however you want to pronounce that, one of the shortest letters that we have, so we'll walk through it, but it's loaded because it deals with a very tough issue of slavery, and we also will talk about this, there's a historical distinction between what his slavery looks like back then, there were a couple different types, and what it looks like in our more modern history, so we'll talk about that. So it is a short letter, but it is loaded. I'll open us up in prayer. Uh, If you want to look at the structure of the book, we put a little bit about that on the back, as we normally do, on the bottom of the back side of your handout. It has structure, kind of the breakdown of the book. I find this chart to be really helpful with most books. With this one, it's only one chapter, so I don't know that it's as helpful, but for consistency's sake, we stuck that in there for you. So I'll open us in prayer, and then we'll jump in. God, thank you so much for putting this letter in your word It is sh- and inspiring it. It is short and brief, but it is packed with so much. We'll just take a look tonight at a little bit of it. But honestly, Lord, if we looked at everything that's in just this short letter, uh, we would run out of time tonight. We really would. There's so much here that your spirit put there. And so, Lord, uh, I just ask that you would guide this time, help us understand what you meant when you put these words on the page. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, introduction and setting. I think the best thing with as short as we have, we'll just read the letter. I usually don't do that right off the bat because they're longer, but let's do that. Just to get a flavor, and then we'll jump back. We'll walk through different parts of it. So, Philemon, New Testament, Go to Hebrews, take a left, it's the next book over. Next week we'll hit Hebrews. So Philemon, chapter 1, verse 1. There's only one chapter, so it's kind of like Jude. Some people say the chapter, some people just say the verse. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. To the beloved Apphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that's in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, as Paul constantly notes that he's praying for the guys that he knows, the guys that he's connected to, the churches that he's helped plant and start, and the men like Timothy that he's helped mentor. He said, look, I make mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, verse 6, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. She's talking to a believer here. So that's his intro, first seven verses. Okay, then verse eight, he gets into his appeal. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ, listen to the tone of what Paul writes. Paul is one of those guys that is... Uh, could kill someone with kindness. He's, he's very uh, dominant in his personality, but yet it's mixed with grace. It's an odd combination. You usually don't see that. Very, very, very dominant personality types. You usually just see them, you know, they run over people. Paul does it, but with, with grace. It's, it's, a, it's a unique mix. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains, he led to Christ, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. In other words, I want you to choose to do this thing I'm asking you to do. Uh, asking slash urging slash uh, <laughs> telling. <laughs> asking. A little bit of all three. Okay, verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. Talking about his salvation. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me your own self besides. (laughs) Yet, brother... 
Let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. (laughs) Paul is just, I love Paul. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. He was in jail, and so he's trusting that likely he'll get to get out and visit him again. So that's the body, that's the appeal. And then verse 23 through 25 is the closing. He puts these in most of his letters. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. So the author of this letter is Paul. Background on this letter, Philemon is a member of the church at Colossae and hosts the church whenever it meets in his house, as you make mentions of that in his introduction. And so Philemon has a slave named Onesimus, Onesimus, who apparently steals from him or in some way wrongs him. He runs away and somehow runs into Paul in Rome. Either he gets caught while in Rome and thrown in jail, or maybe he hears that Paul is in Rome and goes to visit him while Paul is under house arrest. Either way, he meets Paul, who leads Onesimus, this runaway slave, this runaway fugitive slave. Paul leads this guy to Christ. So Paul writes this letter to Philemon, the owner, and he asks Philemon to release Onesimus, his slave. If you look at Colossians, we're going to bounce over to that letter, and then we'll jump right back to Philemon. So look at Colossians. Now, why are we going there? So take a left, a few letters. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7 through 9. Why are we going through Colossians? Well, it's the same, not only is it the same region and the same area, Philemon, the church, at least one of the churches in Colossae, met in his house. So there's that connection. But then also, both of these letters were sent out, we think, at the same time to the area of Colossae. So it's the same exact time frame, same setting, same context. So Colossians 4 7 through 9 says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose so that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. I'm sending him, he says, verse 9, with Onesimus. That's the guy we're talking about in Philemon. A faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will make known to you all the things which are happening here. So probably these two guys actually deliver Two letters, Colossians and Philemon, to uh, the church in Colossae, and then Philemon to, obviously, a personal letter to him. Although it's also addressed to the church, because we see that in verse, uh, we see that in verse two. So uh, Paul writes this Colossians letter and Philemon letter under arrest in Rome. He has these two guys, Tychicus and Onesimus, deliver them to the church. And then this letter to Philemon, uh, believers in the church at this time, not just in Colossae, but all over. So when he writes to Timothy, he's pastoring in Ephesus. Same thing is true in Ephesus. The believers in a lot of the churches did have slaves. So we're going to talk about this issue of slavery as we walk through this tonight. You don't need to turn there if you've already flipped back, but if you are still in Colossians, look at 3.22, or just listen, Colossians 3.22 through 4.1, so same exact setting, same time frame. He says, he gives instructions to bondservants and the masters. Bondservants obey, and that word in 3.22 is doulos, bondservant. So typically that referred to an actual slave that someone owned. There's another word for slave that comes from the word house, oikos, and that word typically meant they were a servant, but it was a little different kind. They were paid. Uh, they were typically highly educated because they often educated their children. They were keepers of the house. And so there's those two different terms there. So there's a few different types of slavery back then, whereas when we think of it today, we think of 17, 1800s, we only think of one type of forced slavery. Um, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart fearing God. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. We don't work for a result necessarily, because you might not get the result you want. We work for reward. 
We work for our, our Lord and, and the reward he has for us. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, for there's no partiality. And then for one, masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul addresses not condoning slavery, but speaking to a culture in which slavery existed and telling people in different roles, whatever role they find themselves in the culture at the time, uh, how to live out the gospel in that role. And so we'll look at some of that. We'll talk more about that in just a little bit. So um, believers in the church did have slaves. While Paul and his writings did not directly attack the institution of slavery, they did reorder the relationship between master and save and servant. Both were equal before God. If you look at Galatians 3.28, it says, we're all one in Christ, whether Jew, Gentile, slave, servant, whatever. We're equal before God. And both master and servant were accountable for their behavior. Uh, if you look back at Colossians 3, and then if you look at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, same deal. They're both accountable for their behavior. He calls them both to something. Uh, in fact, let's see here. Oh, yeah, no, I just put that in my notes. Okay, yeah, so a lot of times when you talk about servanthood, you talk about slavery, the term social justice gets thrown around, and it's a term that is used a whole lot these days. So in our intro, I just want to briefly talk about that. The term social justice is in and of itself redundant. It's repetitive. What justice is there that's not social in nature? God loves justice, true justice and righteousness. All justice has a social implication. So saying social justice is like adding the word wet to rain. All rain is wet. You know, unless you live in Arizona and it dries up before it hits the ground. All rain is wet. So someone might say Philemon is a letter that proves Paul believed in social justice. But Paul, and we're going to see this, interestingly does not plead to Philemon for justice, although this is the one time that he specifically asks someone to free his servant. He pleads to Philemon not for justice, but for mercy and grace. So how Philemon responds to Onesimus, who's gonna, uh, who is coming back to him in repentance after he's stolen something or did him wrong and ran away, will reveal Philemon's true grasp or understanding of the gospel. How Philemon responds to his servant who comes back to him with repentance will reveal Philemon's true grasp or understanding of the gospel. Is he going to treat him harshly in judgment or is he going to extend mercy and grace? And Paul obviously is asking slash urging slash telling in the style that Paul does. Love Paul. Hey, I want you to do this, but you're pretty much going to do it, but I'm still asking. I would like for you to, <laughs> but but I trust that you will. <laughs> and he says, I'll trust you even do more than I'm asking. So let's look at the content of the letter. He gives his introduction in verse 1 through 7. Look at 1, 8 through 10, verse 8 through 10 of Philemon. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, in other words, what he's about to ask him to do, though I might be bold in Christ to command you what's fitting, yet for love's sake, I'm going to be gentle, in other words, I rather appeal to you versus command you. I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, in other words, I'm old, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, he says, for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in chains. So right off the bat, I think this letter shows God's ability to orchestrate events and personal connections to lead people to him and to bless their lives. I don't think we should ever overlook a meeting with someone as being unimportant or neglect to be an influence to someone toward Christ whenever you get the opportunity because you don't know all that God can do with that meeting or that situation. So God puts, think about this, God puts Onesimus next to the man, Paul, in Rome, a long way away from where he'd been and where he'd run away from, next to the man who led his master, the one he's running from, to Christ. Think about the connection God makes between Onesimus, this runaway fugitive slave, and Paul, the man who led his owner to Christ. So that's incredible. That's not just a coincidence. So don't think for a second that God isn't using you in personal connections you have and someone you know and a casual conversation that you think, oh, well, that was just random. There are these divine appointments that God sets in place, and the, 
we need to trust that they're always there. He's always doing this. He's always orchestrating things because he is. And sometimes we take that for granted. So I want to remind you of that. I think this letter, if anything, is a reminder of God's ability to orchestrate events. I mean, here's this guy, steals from his owner, runs away, not supposed to do that. Under Roman law, you could be severely punished or even killed. If, if, it, if it's killed, it had to have a court approval to be legal. But still, you could be severely punished or killed if you were a runaway slave. So Onesimus can face either one of those charges. The guy either gets arrested in Rome, caught and chunked in jail, or somehow runs across Paul just randomly. The guy who led his master to Christ leads him to Christ and then gets to write, basically, this letter is basically a letter of introduction, kind of, defending uh, and going to bat for this guy that Paul just led to Christ, to the master that he'd already led to Christ before when he was in Colossae. So it's incredible. Don't think for a second that God isn't using divine appointments. The guy that discipled me, Bud McGinnis, at my last church, he was in his 20s, 30s. He was kind of like Dave Ramsey's story, uh, except without the bankruptcy part because the guy called his notes. He was wheeling and dealing in real estate. He was worth millions he was busy. He was a member of, of the church over there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. If the, the church needed a new parking lot, he wrote a $35,000 check to, I mean, that, this was this guy. So he thought he was a deacon at the church, and he thought, hey, I'm, you know, pat myself on the back kind of an attitude. My worth to the kingdom is the fact that I can write a check for this parking lot. So the pastor said, listen, I have a friend, a pastor from Africa, an African missionary pastor, He's coming over here to stay with me for about a week. He wants to do lunch with you. Can you do lunch with him at some point this week? And this guy's thinking, he's busy. He's the wheeling, dealing kind of guy. So he's busy, and he said, I don't have time for this. Okay, Tuesday. So they do lunch on Tuesday. He sits down. He's already thinking, how long is this going to take? I got a business deal I got to get back to. Some paperwork to do. So he sits down, and they're sitting at a table for lunch, and this long, tall, dark African pastor long, tall hands, long, tall fingers, reaches over the table, touches him, pokes him in the chest. I mean, you don't do that here in Texas, right? That's, you're aiming for a fight or something. Pokes him in the chest with his finger, and he looks him square in the eyes, and he said, Pastor tells me you're one of his guys. You know, and Bud's sitting there, yeah. You know. And he paused for a second, and he looked him right in the eye, and he said, where are your disciples? And Bud looked at him, and he kind of thought, he said, I didn't have an answer. I had no answer for him. I stumbled through something. I don't even remember what I said. I had no answer for him. And he, he told me, he said, that plagued me for the next several months, that the, the, the most important fact about my contribution to the kingdom of God should not be that I can write a $35,000 check to pay for a parking lot. That's important, too. He said, that pales in comparison to... Jesus' command in Matthew 28 for all of us to make disciples. And when this guy tells me, asks me where my disciples are, I don't have an answer because I don't have any because I haven't mentored anyone. I haven't led anyone to Christ. haven't done a Bible study with anyone. haven't prayed consistently. I haven't discipled anybody. I have no disciples. And uh, he said, that hit me like a ton of bricks. So now, so he's corrected that. Maybe even almost overcorrected. There's no such thing. But he's corrected that. Goes to the corner bakery in Plano has anywhere from 8 to 12 guys a week meet with him. He leads a young singles men's group on, I don't know, Monday night, I think. And then on Tuesday morning, he leads a young marrieds men's Bible study at a La Madeline there. And guy's a discipling machine. You can't walk around the church where he's a member now, which is one of the biggest churches in America, especially in Texas. You can't walk around that church and not run into a guy that hasn't been mentored by this guy. I mean, he's a machine. He mentors and disciples all over the place. Uh, and so God used this random pastor that he's never met before, never met since, to come in to make, because he had a divine appointment that day at lunch, and Bud was thinking, worried about his next business deal, but God had other plans. God used that divine appointment to make a connection to get this guy's life course turned a different direction to focus on something different. So these divine appointments for your life are not the exception, I don't believe. I believe that they're the rule, and that's what Paul recognizes in verse 15 of Philemon. Look, verse 15, what's it say? For perhaps he left you, departed for a while, for this purpose. What purpose? 
so that you might receive him forever. And basically what he's saying is, maybe, he, maybe God orchestrated all this stuff and used the fact that he ran away, did you wrong, ran away, fled to, uh, fled to Rome, ran into me, I led him to Christ, so that he, maybe God is using all this to lead him to himself, to lead him to salvation. That's Paul's point in verse 15. So Paul believed this too. This is not just me. I, I think divine appointments in your life are not the exception, they're the rule. Look at uh, verse 10 and 11. So 10, he says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains. 11, he says, who once was unprofitable to you, but now he's profitable, not just to you. He says, to you and to me. So I don't ever want to give up hope that someone can still come to Christ. You know, you could have looked at Onesimus, this guy who was a servant under Philemon, I don't know how Philemon treated him. We don't have that backstory, but apparently either he treated him poorly enough or the guy just got selfish or greedy or whatever, or he thought, well, he's not paying me anyway, so I might as well. So he stole from him or wronged him in some way and then fled. You might look at that guy and say, well, that guy's beyond hope. And we do that with people sometimes. We look at him and go, they're not coming to Christ. They're beyond hope. Uh, It's hopeless. The situation's not gonna change. I'm just gonna give up hope that they will come to Christ. I don't think... We ever should do that. If Onesimus can come to Christ, anyone can. You know, I, I know we look at Washington, D.C., and we think, sometimes if we're not careful, we just think, okay, well, that's just a, a, a swamp of corruption and, and uh, cronyism and big government and all these things. But listen, God has his people. Yes, Satan influences, and he obviously wants to control our government. But God has his people still in Washington, D.C. There's a guy who works with lobbyists, a believer of a Christian ministry group, who works with lobbyists all the time and people going to serve in Congress who are Christians. And they say, God called me to go up here and to be salt and light. So God has his people there. You, you know, but we tend to have the attitude like Elijah had or Jeremiah or some of those guys where they go, I'm the only one, you know, Jeremiah, I'm the only one doing this. There's nobody else in this country doing this. And God goes, no. And Elijah kind of had a little pity party. And God said, look, no, no, you're not. I've got guys you don't even know about. I've got people there. Uh, My stepbrother's girlfriend works as one of the senior staffers in the House of Representatives. And she's a believer. So she gets to be salt and light to, uh, I know that area is dark. I know a lot of crazy stuff goes on stuff behind the scenes that half of which we don't even know about. But God has his people there. So she's not there for an accident. She's there for divine appointments. And she's around those people and she, you know, and so there's people like that everywhere. Look at verse 16. He says, look, I, I, I wanted, verse 14, I, I, without your consent, I didn't want to keep basically Onesimus with me is what he's saying. I wanted to send him back to you Uh, so that your good deed, verse 14, might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. So there's a totally different situation when someone makes you do something right versus when you decide, I'm going to do what's right in this situation. Those are two very different things. And ultimately, in the long run, you can't force uh, somebody to do what's right. They have to decide to do that. And so Paul is saying in verse 14, look, I, I didn't I think Paul believed he didn't think it was right for him to keep Onesimus, who he led to Christ, so he could help him while he was in chains, be a minister and a disciple maker and a church planner and all that. I think that's what he's referring to. He's useful for the kingdom of God, useful to me. I didn't think he wanted, I think he didn't want to keep him because maybe he thought, well, you know what? We need to make this right. You need to go back and reconcile things. Even though he, I don't know how Philemon treated him. He may have mistreated him, but he sends him back. Uh, I think that's, think that's honorable. That's very likely behind what Paul's doing. And Paul, in verse 15, Paul says, look, the reason all this happened was probably, who knows, it was probably because this guy, so that this guy could come to Christ, so that you might receive him forever. That's what he's hinting at. He's going to be your brother forever, and not just a slave, verse 16. So look at chapter 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. 
especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So clearly he's saying, look, this guy came to Christ. So God always teaches, I think what you see in verse 16, God always teaches forgiveness, particularly when someone has come to Christ. When someone comes to Christ for salvation, our response in the church is that we don't count what they did in their past against them. They're repentant, they've come to Christ. Now that they've come to Christ, all that is paid for. So we receive them just as one of us, an imperfect sinner who had their sin completely paid for by Jesus Christ, because that's our story too. There's a guy in this church who came to salvation in Christ who, if we focused on his past before Christ, what that looks like, and I was thinking about him as I was reading through verse 16. If we focused just on what his past before Christ looked like, we would be tempted to treat him differently, to not fully receive him in perfect Christian fellowship. But in Christ, that's not really an option for us, is it? So we receive him, we have fellowship with him, we encourage him to look more like the image of his creator. It doesn't matter what his past was. And Paul says in 16, look, when he come, I sent him back to you. And look, Philemon can say, I want judgment, not mercy and grace. And so he could have this guy whipped, he could have him thrown in jail, he could have him punished in a myriad of other ways, or with court approval, stamp of approval, he could have him killed under Roman law for being a runaway slave. But Paul's saying, look, I'm sending him back to you no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother. And he means brother in Christ. Onesimus came to Christ. Obviously, he's repentant. He's sending him back. Whatever wrong he did to him, most commentators think it was stealing. Whatever wrong he did to him, he's repentant. He wants to make it right. And so Paul's saying, hey, uh, this is important. Let's do this. And so um, that, I think, has to be our attitude toward each other in the church. That's the attitude Paul encourages Philemon to have. Look at verse 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him. What's that say? As you would who? Me. So wait a second. Let's say your senior pastor was coming over to your house for dinner. Pastor Franklin was coming over to your house for dinner. You would want to, wouldn't you? Receive him with honor. Make sure the dinner was good. Make sure the table was set. Make sure the table wasn't full of your last 10 projects that you, you know, I don't know if you're an otter and you're, your, your dining table is full of junk and projects, or if you're a beaver, there's probably nothing on it and it's clean, or anywhere in between. But you would, right, you would somewhat roll out the red carpet and say, okay, we want to host him and Lisa, and we want it, the food to be good, and we want to make sure the dining room looks nice, make sure the carpet's clean, all that stuff. So that's how you would receive Paul. I mean, Paul helped the church at Colossae. Philemon, the church meets in his house. So Paul's going to come over to Philemon's house. Philemon's going to do the same thing. What does Paul say? If then you count me as a partner, that's a yes if. In other words, of course you do. Receive him just like you would receive me. Think about that. Think about what Paul just said. Paul says, look, Jesus has shown you mercy and grace. Because of that, I want you to show mercy and grace to this repentant believer who I'm sending back to you. So the principle from this is the love of Jesus should be shown through our forgiveness of other people, particularly in community of faith, particularly with with those who are repentant, who have trusted Christ. Verse 19, he says, I, Paul, am writing to you with my own hand. Look what he says. I will repay. So apparently this guy did maybe take something. He said, I will repay. Not to mention to you, so he brings this up, oh yeah, I led you to Christ. (laughs) Not to mention to you that you, Philemon, owe me your own self besides. So Paul brings that up. But he says, look, I'll repay it, whatever this guy owes. You would typically buy yourself out of this kind of slavery. I'm sorry, you could typically buy yourself out of slavery in much of the Roman Empire because much of the slavery from this time was economic slavery or slavery of poverty. And you say, well, we don't have that here today. Well, wait a second. No, we don't, not in that exact form, but listen to this verse and just write it down if you're taking notes. Listen to this verse. No, we do not have slavery today in this country in, this, in that particular form. But listen, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is slave or servant to the lender. 
So when I take on debt, I'm creating a type of master-servant relationship where there wasn't one before. Psalm 37, 21 says, the wicked borrow and do not repay. So there's an obligation to settle accounts, to be honorable with, with a debt, if I do have a debt. So Onesimus did have a legitimate reason to return uh, to Philemon after getting saved so that he could settle accounts and make things right. But instead of having to work the rest of his debt off, which was likely the situation, Paul is hoping that Philemon will forgive his debt or at least put it on Paul's account. That's absolutely incredible. Uh, look at verse 22. But meanwhile, he says, uh, oh, verse 21, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you. What's Paul saying? Knowing that you will do even more than I say. What's Paul saying? You're going to, yeah, I'm asking you to do this, but I'm pretty confident that, that you're going to do this. I, mean, I, love, I love the way he writes. It's, it's hilarious. If you don't see the humor in this, I think you're not reading it right. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. So, you know, I don't know what that means. Maybe it means, hey, maybe you'll just let, forgive him his debt completely or just let him go. Be his own man. But meanwhile, look at verse 22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me. Where's Paul when he's writing this? In jail. What's he say? I want you to prepare a guest room for me. Why? For I trust did he say, I want you to prepare a guest room for me, but I'm not going to be able to enjoy it because woe is me, I'm in jail, I'm never going to get out. Wah, the earth is turning upside down, everything is horrible. No, he doesn't say that. He says, meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers, obviously the church is praying for Paul, of course they were, that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. In other words, I'll get to get out, come visit you again. And he does have a period before his first and second imprisonment, where he does get out for a little bit. And so, Paul isn't under arrest thinking, well, that's it, it's all over, everything's ruined. Paul doesn't have a doomsday attitude, and I don't think we should either. So here's this guy sitting in jail, writing this letter with enough confidence to at least say, no, he's not saying, I know God told me this will happen and this is a prophecy. He didn't say that, but he just has a, an attitude of hope to say, look, Things are going to be okay. God might answer your prayer. I have hope that he might. I might get to come see you again. Get your guest room ready. Obviously, Philemon's got a large house with a you know, couple extra wings and a couple extra rooms. So Paul doesn't have a doomsday attitude. I, I don't think we should either. It's easy to when all we fill our minds with is negative news, and we need to know what's going on in the news. We shouldn't bury our head under a rock. But when all I feed my brain is Fox News 24-7, it's just negative, 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 negative. It becomes overwhelming. Uh, so how much time do I spend doing that? Not saying don't do it, but versus how much time do I spend in God's word, in prayer, mentoring someone, praying with somebody over the phone who's struggling with something. I mean, fill in the blank. The list goes on and on and on. And so... Uh, you know, we might say, well, you know, the guy I voted for didn't win, so it's all over. Never going to vote again. America's done. Let's just hang it up. Let's hang our hat up. Let's throw our hat in the ring. Like I said, David Barton, uh, who's over wall builders, the Constitution class we're wrapping up tonight, he has friends in D.C. who have personally told him that there are many, not a few, many believers in Christ being called to serve there, to be salt, to be light. And so... Um, Listen, God is never done, and I, I don't think we should have a doomsday attitude. I think it's fine to be bummed for a little while. I'm, a, I'm kind of upset that a particular thing happened. Okay, fine. Uh, but then to do something about it, to move on, and even if whether or not I like a person who's in a certain position of authority, I still have a duty, according to 1 Timothy 2, it's not an option, it's not optional, I still have a duty to pray for him. And so uh, I think that's an... Uh, obviously uh, applies to us. So, so question. Now, if Philemon follows Paul's advice, what's Paul essentially asking him to do? To do? Forgive his debt. Probably he's even saying free him. If Philemon follows Paul's advice, then Onesimus, his slave, is off the hook, right? And judging from Paul's close friendship with Philemon and the way Paul writes this letter, he probably does, although we're not sure. 
But what if Philemon does not do that? Just the what if. If you read this letter, you understand Paul's and Philemon's friendship was probably pretty close. He likely does, but let's just say he doesn't. What's true for Onesimus, the slave, in that situation? If Philemon says, nope, not forgiving anything, he's going to pay for what he stole or damaged, plus what he already owed me, he's going to have to work it all off. If that happens, then Paul's instruction and a letter he wrote a pastor named Timothy would apply. I know we went over this a few weeks, but I just want to look at it one more time real quickly. So 1 Timothy 6. Uh, This is tough, especially in our day and time, but I just want you to hear me out because I want to explain a principle we get. 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. If Philemon goes, no, you know, I'm not really going to let him go, then Onesimus, the slave, would be obliged to submit to 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. He says, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor. The word honor there means to attach value to somebody. Uh, so that, why? So that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed, spoken against. And, listen to this, not only that, he doesn't stop there, he says, and those who are believing masters, if your master's a, a believer, let them not despise them because they are brothers, but rather serve them because they, are benef- they who are benefited are believers and beloved. So here, Paul does not condone slavery, but he does speak to a culture in which slavery existed, and again, often then it was economic and not ethnic and gives the servant instruction on how to value their master. So it's not an ideal situation, but it's a situation that many people found themselves in. In fact, the majority of the Roman Empire, on a percentage basis, was under one of those types of slavery. Doulos, full slavery, or uh, the word for house, slave, uh, a, a paid, many times they were paid, servant, who could themselves have servants, who could buy themselves out of slavery. Many times it was simply an economic, I owe this debt to this person, so I'm working for them. They're my master until I pay this debt off. So that was also uh, very common. So Paul uh, basically says, look, I want you to attach value to them. Look what he says. Count your, uh, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke. Why would he use that phrase under the yoke? Okay, he already said they're a bondservant. Of course, they're under the yoke. That's repetitive. That's redundant. Why would Paul say that? Paul basically is saying, look, I know you're under the yoke. I know this is hard for you. I know this calling I'm about to tell you to call you to is very difficult, but I want you to serve Jesus no matter what social structure that you find yourself in. And so for Onesimus, if Philemon says no, 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 comes to bear for him. And listen, that, that's going to be a very, very tough calling, but the principle that we find in 6, 1, and 2 of 1 Timothy is that the name of Jesus and broadcasting the truth of this book has to be more important than my happiness or my circumstance. So I told this story a few weeks ago, but I'll tell it again briefly. North Korean refugees find an easier time crossing the two rivers to the north side of North Korea into China than they do the DMZ going south towards South Korea. Uh, for many reasons. And so a lot of times they'll flee to China. Well, the Chinese government is buddied up with the North Korean government, and so they'll just send them back. They don't care. So there's a Christian ministry that a guy that was in one of my seminary classes works with that's in that area of China, and they work kind of underground, and they'll find these guys, I don't know how, but they coordinate and and grab them and, and meet with them, and they'll pull them into their ministry, and they'll help them Uh, gain weight back. I mean, some of these guys don't even have enough food. They'll help them get back on their feet, find a job. They'll witness to them, and a lot of times they end up leading them to Christ. Okay, so the guy, the North Korean refugees that are now in China, that now are working and uh, come to Christ, many of them feel the call to go back to North Korea. So go swim back across the river, go back to North Korea to be a missionary in a country, I don't know how much you know about this country, but in a country where for, for following Christ and not worshiping uh, the leader, literally, uh, you can be arrested. You're, they have concentration camps. We found it on our satellite imagery. Your whole family can get chunked in a work camp for who knows how long. 
Uh, they don't play around, and, they, and there's no Christianity. They, they, don't, they don't accept that stuff. And so these guys go back. You know what their life expectancy is? Weeks or months, typically. Not very long. And they know that. They know that going into it. And they go over there anyway. Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Why in the world would somebody go back to people who hate them to go witness to them? Or say, we're going to go into the Middle East, where, I won't explain what happens for her sake, but uh, where they decapitate you, uh, for being a believer, for being a traitor. Let's say you're going to go witness to them. Why in the world would you go witness and be salt and light to guys that are going to decapitate you? I mean, come on. I mean, this, this makes no logical sense at all. Well, guess what? You're not going to unless First Timothy 6, 1 and 2. It doesn't matter if you're a servant, uh, literally in that cultural setting or not. All of us, unless this attitude is true for us, unless the name of Jesus and broadcasting the gospel is more important to us than our circumstance or our happiness, just like he calls the servant to in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, and would apply to Onesimus if Philemon says no to Paul's question, uh, favor that he's asking of him, then we're not going to go do that either. I, w- I wouldn't go to the Middle East to witness to people who hate me. I wouldn't, if I was a North Korean and I fled to China for my life and for my livelihood I, and I got saved, I wouldn't go back unless I had this attitude. So I think this teaching is crucial. And again, Paul's not endorsing the institution itself. He's simply speaking to a culture in which that institution existed, and he's providing instruction. Because the Bible does that. It, reach, it talks to you wherever you are right now. It doesn't say, look, this is a perfect utopia. If earth is not perfect, well, then you're just doing things wrong. Y'all can fix this. You don't need me. Just do it this way and this way and this way, and then you'll have utopia on earth. No, Christ has to come back and rule and reign for a thousand years for us to have a kingdom that works the right way. Our country is great, but it's still imperfect. And we won't have a perfect government until Jesus runs it. So he's not saying that because he knows that won't happen under our rule. It'll only happen under his actual literal on earth rule. So he's he's talking to us where we are in an imperfect system saying, look, Wherever you find yourself in this imperfect system, not endorsing all of it, the system, saying wherever you find yourself in this imperfect system, this country uh, in Ephesus where slavery existed, you serve Christ wherever your role is. You be salt and light. And he says, look, if your master is a believer, you treat him with double honor because he's a believer. The, the person you're benefiting by working hard for, he's a believer, so he gets... the." you know, some reward of it. I mean, think about that attitude. Think of how countercultural that is today. Think of how selfless uh, that, what kind of selfless nature that requires. Uh, but Jesus does ask that of us. He does require that of us. So um, if you want to look more into this issue of what the Bible has to say about slavery, you can write these down. We'll just read uh, two quick verses. You can write these down. First Corinthians 7, 17 through 24 addresses it, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 addresses it, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 23 addresses it, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 23. I want to read you 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, so the book we're in, kind of, as a side note. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but the lawless and insubordinate. Okay, well, what are examples of that? Well, for the ungodly and for sinners, the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. Listen, verse 10. For fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers. You hear that word kidnappers? That is someone who buys and sells people, trades people to slaves. That's what that word's talking about. So that's in his list. Look at Exodus. I think this verse ought to clear it up for us real quick. Exodus twenty-one sixteen. God's word speaks to us in an imperfect system and tells us how best to live for him in that imperfect world, damaged by our sin. But look at Exodus 21, 16. You say, well, you know, the Bible could... And and early in this nation, some of the Southerners who didn't want to get rid of slavery, uh, many of our founders wanted to get rid of it, but they knew, and they fought to get rid of it, but they knew that we would never unite to form the Constitution or even the Declaration if they made that the issue. So they tabled it. And they decided to do what we could all agree on. But a majority of the colonies actually didn't want it. Most people don't know that. Uh, a few of them did. 
they said, look, we're out if you do this. So they said, all right, for unity's sake, because if we're not unified, we're never going to beat the king. We're never going to have independence. They tabled it for later, and their thought was, hey, we'll table this for later, but it'll work itself out in a decade or two. Unfortunately, it did not. But look at God's thoughts on forced slavery, not economic, I'm paying off this debt. That's honorable, right? Remember what Psalm 37, 21 says. He who borrows and doesn't repay, that's wicked, that's wrong. But forced slavery is what we're talking about. Look at Exodus 21, verse 16. Here is God's very clear on the penalty. He says, he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is even found in his hand, if, if the guy's even found in your possession, a slave, shall surely be put to death. So this would involve slave trade, This would involve human trafficking. By the way, that's still going on all over the world today. This would involve slave trade. This would involve human trafficking. Middle East, there's still slavery going on. In fact, I just finished a book by a guy. If you ever saw The Ghost in the Darkness about the two man-eating lions that killed so many Indian workers on the railroad bridge that they quit working until something was done about the lions, they developed an appetite for human people and and got so bad, the the work crews left. Well, so the bridge engineer who's from England, if y'all haven't seen The Ghost in the Darkness, it's uh, Val Kilmer. So the bridge engineer has to, in the movie, it has another guy named Remington come and help him hunt down the lions. In real life, Remington didn't even exist. The bridge engineer stopped what he was doing, killed both lions himself with his rifle. One of them almost got him. So you read the story if you're into hunting stories and stuff. It's excellent reading. And so I'm reading this story and uh, so he kills both the lions, get the, gets the workers back, finishes the bridge, and finishes the railway from Mombasa to Kenya. And so, you know, we say this was a long time ago. Really, it wasn't that long. It was early 1900s. When you think about human history, that's not that long ago, human history. So early 1900s is when all this happens, kind of turn of the century. Br- uh, British, Britain still has part of Kenya, British East Africa. Uh, German ha- Germany has part of it. I think France had part of it. And then Somalia was Italy. Italy had Somalia and all that area. So he goes over there. Well, what does he see right when he gets to Mombasa in the beginning of his book? Uh, these Arabian slave traders coming into port, uh, grabbing people or buying people that had been grabbed and, and going off in their uh, ship, their boat, small boats, back off to the Middle East to, to use them. And so this stuff is, uh, is everywhere, but this is what God says about it. Hey, if you force someone, not talking about economic working off a debt, that kind of servanthood, but he who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he's found with a slave, he shall be put to death. So that's pretty darn clear. So Philemon is a small letter. There's 25 verses to it. That's it. If you're flipping through your Bible, you blink, you miss it. But it has powerful truths, and we've really only dug into some of them. So I think one of the things it clearly shows us is that you are God's ambassador or representative for his kingdom here on earth. Don't ever forget or underestimate the value, the power, and the importance of that. Also, I think you see how you respond to someone when they sin against you, which Onesimus did to Philemon, will reveal your true grasp and understanding of the gospel and your willingness to submit to the gospel. And I think that is true in any social context. I think another thing you see from Philemon is that only Jesus Christ can bring perfect unity between two people, or between two people groups, or between fill in the blank. And he does this by love displayed through forgiveness. And that's ultimately what Paul's asking Philemon to do. Love displayed through forgiveness. And... His love shown through you can overcome any situational barrier. I think that's absolutely the case because that's what you see governing the letter of Philemon and Paul's attitude behind why Paul wrote the letter in the first place. And if Paul thinks, look, there's no chance that Philemon's going to respond to this, he doesn't write the letter. He writes it being confident that Philemon's actually going to respond. So homework, go home and read through Philemon. If you want to look more into this particular topic, and how scripture deals with it, uh, the issue of servanthood or slavery. There's great resources out there, but just a few that I want to highlight. There's an article by Denny Burke, 
If you want to shoot me an email, I can send you the link to read it or just come up and ask, or just, I printed this out, you can take it. It's an article by Denny Burke called Seven Reasons Why You Shouldn't Read 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2 as an Endorsement of Slavery. Excellent little description. Uh, There's a great article in the back of the ESV Study Bible. I don't know if any of you have the ESV Study Bible. It's awesome. Historically and theologically, it's a great study tool. So at the back of it, they have a lot of articles So there's an article at the back of the ESV study Bible called Racial Discrimination, and it's only a couple pages long. Fantastic. Go read that. You can probably look it up online. I'm not sure, but you might have to buy the Bible. Uh, Third, there's an excellent article by Wall Builders. These last two are by Wall Builders, the people doing the Constitution class we're teaching. One's called The Founding Fathers and Slavery, just a massive amount of information on most, not all of them, most of their true view on that issue which most people uh, don't teach. Well, not only that, they teach the opposite today. They actually teach a complete lie. Number four, America's exceptional history of anti-slavery from wall builders as well. So if y'all want to look at these, if you want to take them, uh, or if you want those links to read digitally, you can just shoot me an email. Any questions as we wrap up tonight? You didn't think we would spend that much time in 25-verse letter, did you? Questions, thoughts? As we wrap up, nothing. Do you have it in your mind? You just want to ask me later. You're not brave enough to ask it in front of everybody. Nobody. Okay, I'll pray this out. Lord, thank you for putting this letter in your word. It is a tough letter to deal with and to have to handle, but thank you for that. I mean, I'm appreciative that you give us these letters in your word that's inspired by your spirit, and Paul certainly was when he wrote this letter to Philemon, that we have to wrestle with and grapple with to find the truths, the principles in your word that uh, we should live out. They're timeless for all Christians, so we should live them out today, just like we should live them out in the early 1900s, just like Paul and Philemon were called to live them out back then. When this letter was written, uh, we're all called, no matter what context or culture or country or ethnicity or state or city we find ourselves in, we're called to walk out these principles and obey them. And so uh, thank you for that. I know that in a fallen world, the truths you have to give us cannot be all easy, simple truths because we've royally screwed this world up with sin. It infects everything. And so, of course, the instruction you have to give us will sometimes be um, difficult, will sometimes be hard, but they're always good. They're always for our best. And so, God, I just pray that you would give us the kind of love for people, particularly those who are repentant through Christ, like Onesimus was, uh, to display your love to them through our complete forgiveness of whatever they've done, extending them mercy and extending them grace because we get that from you. So we are not allowed to sit on those things. We are called, we're commanded to uh, be the channel to extend those things to other people through your strength and through your leadership. So God, I, I just pray for that attitude for us tonight. I think that's clearly Paul's attitude and hopefully he hoped would, would be Philemon's attitude toward the gospel and obedience to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.